and the promises of the Lord. So whether we endure a lot of good or a lot of bad, we're reminded that we will be with Him. Last week we discussed end times. Anybody else, like Adam said, excited? I'm excited to see how it plays out. I am. I mean, I, I'm kind of excited to see the sky split wide open and him come down in, in full glory and power and shut up the, the, the devil and all of his, uh, you know, friends and uh, colleagues. I'm, I'm excited for that. Um, but I will tell you this. We also could have a long time to go. So what do we do during this waiting time? Well, we continue to do what we've always done. We continue to pray, we continue to fast, we continue to serve, we continue to give. And I think Paul gives us a beautiful uh, list, if I can, of things that you and I ought to do daily. Who here has ever wondered, how in the world am I supposed to do this Christian thing? You ever wondered that? Like, how am I supposed to really live? Um, I think we all wonder it at times. Am I doing enough? Am I doing too little? Should I do something different? For example... um, I'm a list maker, okay? I like to make lists about one or two weeks prior to leaving on vacation. I make a list of things that have to be done. I've got to get this done. I've got to get this done. I've got to get this done. I've got to get the dog here. I've got to get these things done. And I make a list of things that I have to do. I love making lists. I love it. It drives my wife absolutely crazy because she is more of, let's just kind of go with the wind. You know, and then you get lost with the wind. You know, you're just gone with the wind, and, and then you fall behind. But I love to make lists, but we all know the term paralysis of analysis, right? We've heard the term or heard the reference where we see all of these things that we have to do, and then because of all of these things are overwhelming, we actually choose to do nothing instead. We all resort back into our little shells as turtles do, and we do absolutely nothing because we're so overwhelmed. Let's just face it, the same is true with the Christian walk. You think of all of these things you have to do. I have to pray. I have to go to church. I have to read the Bible. I have to give up some of my money. I have to go to this outreach opportunity. I have to attend this service, or I have to, I have to, I have to. And here's the thing. My hope for you is that as we read these things to do, these won't be a list of tasks to do. They will become who you are. So whenever we get into these things... These ought to be not just things that I do just because I'm a Christian. These ought to be things that we do and just become who we are. That's my prayer is that instead of you looking at the Christian life or the Christian walk as all of these things you have to do, I pray that all of those things become who you are. Going to church is just who I am. It's non-negotiable. We have to worship the Lord corporately, collectively, as instructed in the Scripture, right? Praying isn't just something I have to do, or maybe if I get enough time, and reading the Bible. Who here has ever tried to say, okay, I'm going to read the Bible all the way through from the beginning to the end, and about three pages in, you can't pronounce the words, you don't know how long ago this was, and you're just so overwhelmed and intimidated, you choose, I'm just not going to read it. Maybe I'll start in the New Testament, and and then we read about all of these miracles, and then we wonder, did they really happen this way, and then we can't pronounce the names, and then we read about the churches and all of the, and then, you know, then we decide we're going to really take on a challenge. We've never read the scriptures, but we're going to start in the book of Revelation, right? We're just going to start right there, and then we become so overwhelmed that we do nothing, or whenever we go to pray, anybody ever wondered how in the world am I really supposed to do this? You know, am I saying the right things? Am I doing the right things? Am I praying? Am I supposed to pray in my head or am I supposed to pray out loud? Am I supposed to pray in a whisper 
Or am I supposed to pray on my knees? Or can I pray in my car? The Puritans said, just pray until you pray, right? And we get so intimidated by the Christian walk and all of these things that are expected of us that some of us will spend years of our lives doing absolutely nothing for the Lord. We have no growing in our faith. We have no growth in our service, and we have no growth in our understanding of his word and the nature of God, and we just get so overwhelmed. So here's my prayer, is that as we look at these things that Paul addresses at the very beginning or at the very end of 1 Thessalonians, these things will be who you are. So let's go, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12. We're going to go all the way to the end, and we're going to go back to it, break it down verse by verse like it should be done here. Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, or the disorderly, or the undisciplined, maybe your Bible may say. It goes on to say, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Let me, remind, let me just say that one again. For those of you that don't live with patience, be patient with them all. See that no one, oh boy, here we go. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice when? Always. When things are good? When God answers my prayer? No, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All right, so we're going to go back to verse 12. And I want to put together verse 12 and 13 and address the fact that Paul is writing to this young, or maybe not in age, but in in their faith, younger congregation, younger church, telling them to respect those who labor among you, those who lead you. The interpretation in the uh, translation of the Greek literally, literally refers to the church leadership. So here's what I would tell you. As a congregation, it is our responsibility, your responsibility to respect, to honor those who have been entrusted by you as you vote upon them and those who have been entrusted by the Lord as he has positioned them into leadership to honor and respect them. That is what he is telling these people. To honor, to respect, and to esteem them highly in love. Now here's what I would tell to the leaders. Live in a way that people want to do that. Okay? Live in a way that people want to do that. Uh, I can't live one way and then live another way outside of church, outside of the pulpit, and expect you to honor me as a Christ follower, but also a leader of other Christ followers. So I must be sure, and this is why James writes in the book of James, he says, not everyone should aspire to be teachers, because teachers are actually judged more harshly. So I would say the same is true with church leadership. 
Church leaders should be respected and honored, prayed for, reached out to, and truly comforted by their parishioners, by their people. But it's also the responsibility of the leaders to live in such a way that people are compelled to respect, to honor, to encourage, to pray for, and to comfort. You know, the same is true in marriage. Whenever, and I spoke to someone yesterday about this, my favorite verse when I got married on my wedding day was Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. I loved it. Paul said, wives, submit to your husbands. <laughs> I was able to puff my chest out a little bit and remind my wife of what Paul said. This is not me saying it, it's the Bible saying it. Uh, and then I continue to read, and I realize, oh wow, there's actually more demands of me <laughs> to love her as Christ loved the church, willing to die for her, okay, as Christ died for the church. I must be willing to love my wife in a way that I'm willing to die for her. But then I also realize that when you compare the bride, which is the church, and the groom, which is Christ, who gave more? Christ. He gave himself completely for us. Who sacrificed more? Who served more? Christ did. Much more than we ever have. So whenever I read on in Ephesians chapter 5, getting down into 25 and 26, I realized in my marriage, I love my wife. But it's actually more demanding of me as a servant than it is of her to submit. I am to love her and to lead her as Christ loved the church, willing to die for her. I think my wife knows that I would die for her, and I would kill for her. I would. There's a few people I would go to prison for, and I've always said this. It's all of those girls that sit under my roof, all of them. I would die for them. I would lay my life down for them. I would lay down my livelihood for them. I would. And I know it makes you real excited. You know, I'm, I would lay my life down for I'm telling you, Holiness, righteousness, and living is attractive to your spouse. So whenever you love and lead in such a way, you know that you're, whenever you're a wife and you know your husband would die for you, but would also get on his face and his knees and plead with the Lord on your behalf and would fast for you, then it's just going to compel you to walk alongside, respect, honor, and submit. Same is true with the church. If we as the leaders live healthy lives spiritually, and we glorify the Lord in all of our conduct and the way that we do things day in and day out, if people have nothing but good to say about us, then healthy leadership will pour over into a healthy church body. But unhealthy leadership will pour over into a very unhealthy church body. So two demands. Congregants, respect, pray for, honor, and esteem the leaders. Leaders live in a way This is for all of us as church leaders. We are to live in a way that people have nothing but good to say about us and to live in a way that they are compelled to follow and to submit and to respect. And that's what he's telling them. And then he goes on to say this. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Admonish means to warn or to give heed to the idol. Your Bible may read the disorderly or the undisciplined. Goes on to say, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Has anyone ever heard or said, you just can't help people that won't help themselves? You ever use that? <laughs> Probably we have, right? Or uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? 
I mean, there's so many things that we may say to reference people that we have tried and we have tried and we have tried. Here's what Paul says about us interacting with those people, that we are to be patient with them all. And here's why. I would bet anything that at one point or another, you and I were either in one of these categories, that we were idle, that we just grew stagnant in our faith, that we weren't growing in our faith. We just got tired of going to church on a weekly basis. We got out of the habit of reading our Bible, and we got out of the habit of praying, and, and we, just, we just did it for so long, and we were so disciplined, and we were so committed. And then over time, we, just, we didn't feel as if we were getting you know, any goosebump feelings, or we weren't feeling any new, fresh of, of, the, you know, of, of the breath of God, the Spirit of God. We just constantly strive to be more and more disciplined, and we were growing in our faith, and then over time, we just become idle. Or there's probably been a time where you were the faint-hearted, right? You go through a season of life, you experience hardships, and you just grow faint-hearted. There's nothing wrong with finding yourself hurting at times, but if we're honest, we can't remain idle or we can't remain faint-hearted. God is a God of movement. God is a God of discipline. God is a God of drawing you to him on a deeper and deeper level daily for you to pick up your cross, not when it's just convenient, but daily and follow the Lord. So we cannot remain idle. We cannot remain faint-hearted. Or let's just be honest, maybe we were weak. Weak. Now this isn't necessarily physically weak, although we can grow physically weak or exhausted because of the life that we live and the jobs that we have or the roles that we play and the responsibilities we have to meet. I mean, who here has ever felt like just curling up back under the blankets and sleeping for the rest of the weekend? Just raise your hand if that's you. Yeah. I mean, there's times we just get exhausted. There's times we just don't want to do anything. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with finding yourself in these positions because if we were to be honest, all of us have found ourselves here at one point or another. We've grown idle. We've grown faint-hearted with all the hardships that we've endured. We've lost loved ones, and and our heart is breaking. Our heart hurts. Therefore, we don't have the the desire to go to church. We don't have the desire to get up in the morning. We don't have the desire to do the things required of us. Or we've actually felt weak. What does Paul say we are to do? Help them. Encourage them. Warn them. So here's what I would tell you. If you find yourself in one of those positions today, maybe you have grown idle in your faith... I want to encourage you and warn you that that is very dangerous for your spiritual well-being. If you found yourself growing faint-hearted, your heart is just aching with all of the things that you're going through, I want to encourage you of the goodness of God. What is it? That He will be with you. That He will strengthen you. That He will carry you through whatever it is that you're going through. And He goes on to say, help the weak. I want to just remind you, if you feel yourself today spiritually or physically just weak and down, I want to remind you that joy comes in the morning meeting. It's not always going to be like this. You're not always going to feel like this. If you continue to praise the name above all names, if you continue to humble yourself before him, you will find yourself, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe months or even years, find yourself feeling strong again, only empowered and sustained by the Holy Spirit of God. So just know that if you find yourself in there, now here's the other challenge. If you know people who are living idle, or are living faint-hearted, or are living weak right now, it's your responsibility to help them, encourage them, but also be patient with them. Be patient with them. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience. Patience should be who you and I are. And then he goes on to say, 
See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but you just don't understand, right? I'm going to send this text back, you know, or I'm going to make this post, or I'm going to, I'm going to let them know exactly how I feel, right? You been there? I'm going, to, I'm going to make sure that they know what they did hurt. You, ever, you all may know the old saying that two wrongs don't make a, a right, right? So if you've been wronged by someone, here's what I plead for you to do. Pray that God would soften your heart and pray that God would draw them to repentance, but also that God be the one to provide them justice, not you. So if you have been wrong, there's nothing wrong with being hurt. There's nothing wrong with, with thinking, I wish they wouldn't have, and I can't believe they did. There's nothing wrong with that. But the, what, when we find ourselves doing wrong is whenever we say, well, I'm going to get them back, and I'm going to do it in this way. So if you and I have been wronged by people, we pray that God will soften our hearts and give us the strength to free ourselves from that offense because we've all been offended, right? I mean, we've all been wronged by somebody. Now, here's the other thing. If you are a parent and your kids have done wrong, it is your responsibility to discipline them and provide them the justice. But if you, are, if you have been wronged by someone else, it is not your responsibility to provide them the discipline and the instruction or the justice that you think they deserve. That's God's job. He'll do it and trust that he will. So I plead with you, and here's the thing. If you and I have been wronged, we think, okay, this is how I'm going to get them back, or karma's going to get them, or, or I'm, going to, I'm going to make sure they, they know exactly what they did. Here's what I plead with you to do. Plead with you to find yourself extending mercy and grace to people that are ignorant to maybe what they've done. People are ignorant, okay? I'm going to say that. Some people are just ignorant to the fact that they are spiritually living in sin and brokenness and darkness and do not know of the light that you and I may live in. But here's what I promise you. They will never be enticed to the light if you provide them the same darkness that they live in, if you provide them the same attitude that they carry, if you provide them the justice that they deserve or you think they, they need. Now, as a parent, if my kids have done wrong, you better believe I'm going to discipline them and you better believe they're going to get justice. But... To another adult, it's not my responsibility. We cannot repay evil for evil. But we are actually to seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is harder than it actually is, isn't it? I mean, it's harder to to do than it is to say. Much easier to say, okay, I'm going to do good until we've been wronged. Until someone's done bad to us. But Paul says, and this is why I said, I don't want this to be a list of you to say, okay, I got to be good. I want you to be good. I want goodness and mercy and grace to be who you are and to not carry the offenses of people that have wronged you and to think, okay, this is how I'm going to get them. He goes on to say, rejoice always, pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God. What is the will of God? That you rejoice always. What does it mean to rejoice always? Does it? Is it always going to feel good? No. But for you to carry a joy that is truly unspeakable, a joy that is full of glory of God, a joy that is able to endure all things in life that you go through, to be able to navigate every season of your life and to constantly be reminded of the strength and the joy and the life that the Lord gives to you. He's the only one. 
He goes on to say, pray without ceasing. Does this mean you can't go to work tomorrow? No. Does this mean you can't do anything again because you have to pray for the rest of your life? No, this is to remind you that you and I ought to live with a mental attitude of constant fellowship with the Lord. That pray without ceasing may mean that as you drive to drive to work tomorrow morning, or as you go through Walmart later this afternoon, or as you're sitting around the the living room uh, three days, four weeks, or ten years from now, that you are constantly in communication with your Father in heaven. That you are constantly aware that you are in His presence. Not just for an hour and five minutes on a Sunday morning, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Even Saturday night. That you and I are to live in his presence and to give thanks in all circumstances, whether it be good or bad, to know that he is still good. Now, I want to get to verse 19 and 20. I want to put them together and I want to try my best because we only have a little bit of time, unless you all have nothing to do today and we can sit. We can just go, right? Anybody got to hurry? If you got to hurry, you can just go. You can go. You can go now. I'm just kidding. I got to go. I'm just kidding. Verse 19, a text that is oftentimes misquoted and misunderstood. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Now, you may hear these texts in hypersensitive atmospheres that are simply emotionally driven and will be misquoted to tell you not to quench the Spirit. There are churches and entire denominations that will misquote this entire passage to emotionally derive the people. And what this verse does not mean is to quench the Holy Spirit by necessarily being slain in the Spirit, or by quenching the Holy Spirit whenever you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is a text that is telling you, do not stop the work of the Spirit, period. If God is working in you through His Spirit, do not stop it. What does that mean? The Spirit of God will empower me as a husband to love my wife greater. It's my responsibility to walk alongside the Spirit of God and to love her deeper and more intimately on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. It is my responsibility to be a father to my kids, but to be a better father five years from now. That is the work of the Spirit of God. And Now, we quench that, we stop it by saying, no, this is how I'm going to do it. No, this is how I'm going to live. No, this is how I am going to operate. So what I am here to tell you is that you and I can quench the Spirit of God by rebuking to obey His prompting. Now he goes on to say, do not despise prophecy. And this is how they are connected. One of the gifts of the Spirit is what? Prophecy. Now here's what I cannot stand And one thing you will never hear me say is today I prophesy to you that God will be good to you. Have you ever heard pastors say that? Surely. If you've ever watched them on TV or if you've been in church long enough, you will hear preachers say or people say, I prophesy today to you that God will be good to you. 
that's really arrogant of me because guess what? When you leave here, you could be in a car accident. Or three weeks from now, you could lose your job. Is God really being good to you if you lose your job three weeks from now and you have no means to pay your bills? It's probably a, a false prophecy. So what can happen is we can believe that when people say, I prophesy with such a vague prophecy that it truly is for us and it may not be accurate at all. Prophecy was intended for a person to prophesy over someone with direct revelation from God, from me to you. That I would prophesy and in my prophecy to you, I would give you instructions on what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. How you ought to change some things in your life or what answers you might need for the days ahead. Prophecy isn't just a term to vaguely throw around and say, I prophesy that God will be good to you. Of course God's going to be good to you because even if life goes miserably wrong, you still get to inherit the eternal gift of God through Christ Jesus, which is heaven. Like, of course he's going to be good to you, but it is our responsibility, and this is why he says next, to test everything. It would be very ignorant of you all to come in here and take everything that I say and never question it. It would. I'm not saying that I'm going to teach heresy. I'm going to do my best to say true to the word and try to preach the word as accurately as I can. But if you come in here and you just sit here and you never think to question or you never want to know on your own, it's called ignorance to not know. And what happens is there are so many Christians walking around right now just listening to what the preacher says or what the televangelist preaches, and they believe it as the true gospel when it could be completely wrong. So what Paul is telling them is, look, don't just, be, don't just listen to this prophecy because they say, I prophesy. Don't, don't quit the work of the Spirit because guess what? The work of the Spirit for you all could be to grow in your faith and maybe even look for yourselves what I am saying or whoever's up here, what they are preaching, what they are teaching to ensure that it is biblically accurate. So he says, do not quench the Spirit. Don't stop what the Spirit of God is doing, how the Spirit of God is wanting to move in your life, how he's wanting to use you to work in your home. Do not quench it. And he says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Test it. You will know that Paul also says that we ought to test the Spirit. That you and I ought to not just give in to what everybody says, but to know for ourselves. Which is why he says, to hold fast what is good. That you ought to know what is true and what is good, and you ought to hold fast to it. And he ends... In verse 22, he says, abstain from every form of evil. So if there are evil things in your life, evil habits. Now, when we think of evil, we think of really big, gruesome evil, right? But what Paul is wanting you to do is to truly purge all sin from your life. He's wanting you to distance yourself from every sinful habit or lifestyle that you live with or that you used to struggle with, and he's wanting you to fully repent and to abstain from every form of evil. You know, one thing in our life group that we started, and if you need a life group, we meet on Thursday nights in the church basement. That's an invitation for everybody. If we have to, we'll move up here and do it up here. But we've been reading through the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, if you remember at the very beginning, they were commanded to drive out all of the Canaanites, all of the pagans. And Numerous tribes of Israel 
just allowed the people to live there with them. Or they would try to enslave them. Or, or they, were, they were good to just tolerate the pagans instead of driving them out completely. And it's imagery for you and I that we can't just live with this little sin here or that little sin there. It's not going to hurt anybody. We are commanded to abstain from every form of evil and to purge it all. He goes on to say at the very end, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And I want to end with that verse right there. That the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. This is a great word of encouragement for you. Because, let's face it, all of us are guilty of something, right? We've all sinned in one way or another. And unfortunately, even after we've given our life to the Lord, we still fall short. You still fall short. You're probably going to fall short maybe today or maybe tomorrow. Maybe you fell short on your way here because someone wasn't fast enough out of the bathroom. And you had to remind them the whole ride. Or maybe you drove way too fast because they were driving, because they put you so far behind. And then not only were you hateful... But then you were speeding and breaking the law. All of us are going to fall short. And we like to think that we won't, but we will. Here is what we can cling to when we find ourselves in that moment. That the grace of God is sufficient for us. So whenever you and I are covered by his blood and we find ourselves falling short, we can rest assured that the grace of God is sufficient for us. So even though I have no right to be presented to Him as holy and blameless through the blood of the Lamb and through the, the life that Jesus gives to me, I can have confidence, not arrogance, but confidence that when I see Him face to face, I will be covered by His blood in such a way and washed whiter than snow in such a way that I will be kept blameless that there will be no offense that God is going to remind me of because he's going to see me through the lens of grace and the cross of Christ, that I can be presented to him. So here's what I want you to do. Whenever we look at all these things, you ought to do this, you ought to do that, you ought to do this. More importantly, you ought to ensure that you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. More importantly than you, you know, not pay, repaying evil for evil, more importantly than you be patient with those people who are struggling, you ought to ensure that you are covered by the blood of the Lamb and that you are prepared for that moment in which you will see Him face to face. Last week we discussed about it, or we discussed it in the, in the uh, building next door, we discussed it this morning. We do not know when that time will come, but it will come. You and I will see Him face to face. So are you kept blameless for that? You cannot keep yourself blameless. You cannot keep yourself holy. It is only by the blood of the Lamb that you and I can stand before Him one day with confidence that we will be welcomed into His eternal kingdom for us to share. Let us pray.